Well, it is a joy to be with you and uh, not to flatter him, but, but James is one of those guys that if you're around him long, you recognize his sincerity, you recognize his giftedness, and you recognize how dedicated he is not to his own ambitions, but to the mission of Jesus. And, and I'm thankful that he's your pastor, his family, and, and, and I'm privileged to be with you today. I've got a couple of my family with me today. I, my wife and I have been married 23 years. We have seven kids um, from 19 to 5, and we, we are grateful for that. We recognize um, that that is both a blessing and sometimes um, hard, but... <laughs> But it's beautiful, and for those who desire kids and maybe haven't had it, we don't, we don't take that for granted. We're very thankful for them. But my oldest, uh, 19-year-old Caleb, and then my, one of my other sons, 10-year-old Noah, is with us. And I'm um, thankful. I have four girls, three boys, and a yellow lab. <laughs> the yellow lab lets us live at her house. And so, so we... We've been in Nashville for about five years, and right now, as, as James mentioned, we're in transition. I'm, I'm helping with a startup business called GetDecent.io. It's, I don't want to take time to explain it, but if you're curious, you can ask me later. And then I'm helping with a local uh, church, which oddly enough and very simply is called Local Church. And, and there's a reason for that, because we're trying to simply help the local church. And so if who we are ever benefits from it, it's great. But if it benefits the local churches of the greater Nashville area, it's even better. And so we're just hoping to equip as many people as possible to love their neighbor well and to live as a, as a, as a disciple maker with Jesus. And so from what I hear, that's what you've been talking about in small groups and in the sermon series and in different elements of just being a disciple maker, what that means, and using a metaphor from the scriptures uh, that's, that typically is described as living scent or live scent. And it's a great metaphor. It's, it's not a metaphor that's original to me, um, although I think our network was one of the first that used it at the time, but it's a metaphor that we stole from John and Paul whom you may know as not the Beatles, right? I don't think they, but, but whom you know as John the Apostle and Paul the Apostle. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter one. And we're gonna look there at John chapter one and um, verses 14 through 17 and kind of dialogue through a few things. And I wanna, as you're turning there, I wanna make three statements just to get them out there, and then we're going to kind of unpack these as we walk through the text this morning. And so whether you're with us in this room or you're with us online, uh, let's just really dive in here and lean in and see how the Spirit might whisper to us um, something from His Word. Those three statements that I think relate to this text are this. You and I were never intended to live for God, but to live with God. You and I were never intended to live for God, but to live with God. And there's a big difference in the two. Secondly, we, we are all broken and beloved we are all at the same time broken 
and beloved. And, and what God thinks of us is much more significant than what we think of him and what we even think of ourselves. And then the third, the third statement is this. You don't mature and then multiply. You mature while multiplying. And so let's, let's process those together as we think on this text, as we think about what it means to live sent with Jesus. And so verse uh, the, on the screen will be ESV, the ESV version. So I'm gonna look up there. Um, but verse 14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's pray and just let our, let's let our, as my buddy Chris says, let's, let's take a moment again to pray and let our souls catch up with our bodies. Has it been a busy week for you? It's been crazy for us. I just sense God's spirit whispering. Let's pause there for a moment. Father, we want to lean in. We want to lean in right now. And you welcome it. So if it's a deep breath, whatever it is, Lord, would you, would you just help us right now to take it? And as we exhale, even for you to breathe who you are into us like you do, Teach us what you want to teach this morning. May I be hidden in you. I pray in your name. Amen. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's my dad's favorite verse in the Bible, unless he's changed it in the last few years. But it's what he always talked about growing up. As I was growing up, I watched him who, as a professor in seminary for the New Orleans Seminary for 40 years, as a pastor of a church in inner city New Orleans that was 60% uh, black and 40% white, as, as, a, as, a, as a leader who developed and poured into others, he believed wholeheartedly in what it meant to be in the middle of the neighborhood and in the middle of the lives of other people. And he engaged in it. And we watched it. We watched him and my mom. We watched 
people sit around our table at times that we didn't really know who they were, but they became friends. We watched people who, who were ignored and on the fringes and marginalized be in our homes and us be in their homes. We, we, we saw them live in a way that when I read the life about the life of Jesus, it looked like them. And so my hope and my prayer this morning is that same thing, that as we dialogue and we think through, or I guess it's a monologue, but we can pretend like you're dialoguing with me. But as we process through this a little bit this morning, I just hope and pray that God's spirit will move, will breathe, will be, that you'll be windblown and you'll be thinking about how is he moving in me? What's my identity? What's my security in him? What's my purpose with him? And then not just my, but ours together. I made this statement a while ago and I believe it with all of my heart. I think it's fundamental to the core of understanding our identity with Jesus. And that is, we weren't intended to live for God, but to live with him. I don't know if you've noticed, but around Christmas time, the, there's this word called Emmanuel, right? I mean, it's one of the names given to Jesus, God with us. And I, I don't know about you, but we have seven kids. We named them intentionally. Like we, we didn't just flip through and go, oh yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, that's a great name. Like we, we named them with some intention, right? And so here's the father naming his son, Emmanuel, God with us. That's significant. And I think for a lot of us, we've kind of been duped into thinking, I've got to live for God. I've got to be good for God, and he'll be good for me. And that's not biblical. The heart of it is really this. In spite of our goodness, of lack of goodness, in spite of our ungodliness, as Paul writes in Romans 4, We've been credited the righteousness of Jesus, which he credited to the ungodly undeservedly. Why? Because he wants to live with us and wants us to live with him. And think about it. So much so that John, as he's reflecting on the life of Jesus, as an older man, he comes, he pins these words, he writes this thought, the word, talking about Jesus, the word became flesh, right? God put on skin, moved into the neighborhood. This, this literally can be, bless you, this literally can be translated, pitched a tent among us. Right? Who knew that he liked camping? The father pitches his tent right into the middle of us. Why? Because he is God with us. He's not just God separated out from us. And I get it. He's transcendent and beyond and, and complex and mysterious. And there's so much about who the Father is that we don't understand. I don't. I am a skeptic at heart. I promise, even as a preacher with degrees in the Bible, I have a lot more questions than I have answers. But I can tell you this. I've consistently seen that he, in his presence, it's our good. 
The psalmist says it. This isn't about us being good, right? This isn't about us living for God. It isn't just about me being good for him. No, why? Because Jesus himself avoids the compliment good, right? He, he's, he, it's almost a joke between me and the kids now where, where somebody's, uh, they'll say, how are you doing? Oh, I am good. And, and I've raised a, a, you know, a bunch of kids who like to talk back and be smart aleck, right? Like, so they say back, like I, they've heard my dad, their dad say, no, only the father is good. And I wasn't, I'm saying it as a joke, but I'm not joking. Why? Because I don't want to raise good kids. I want to raise kids who know his goodness. And when the, when the Savior that I follow himself avoids the compliment good, he's called a good teacher and he rebuts. Only the Father is good. So maybe the goal isn't my goodness. Maybe it's not to live for him. Maybe it's not to be known. Maybe it's not about that. Maybe it's about being with him and his goodness being made known. That's the heart of living sent, guys. This isn't just some nice strategy. You, you don't live sent well apart from recognizing a with Jesus life is the central piece of it. You, you don't live sent or be a disciple maker well if the self-focused nature of a for God life remains central to what you're doing. A for-God life is so focused on self, we typically miss the mission of God because we're on mission to be good instead of focusing on his goodness and it being known even, even in our ungodliness. And for some of you here that this morning, that is freeing. It's freeing because you've been carrying a weight that he never intended for you to carry. Here's, here's why this matters so much. If you miss this thought, this idea, the heart of this, that he wants to be with us, that he has moved into the neighborhood, that we observe his glory, the glory is the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you miss that, then you might never live sent because you might not ever think you're good enough. You might not ever think you're worthy enough or you may not ever live sent because you think you're too good or much better than you are. And I'm convinced that in our world, in American culture today, the church is much to blame for the things that we point fingers at. Because we've been too busy not pinching, pitching our tent in the middle of the culture. We've been too busy trying to figure out how to separate ourselves out of it. But to live sent with Jesus, to be a disciple maker with Jesus, means to pitch our tent the way he did, to move into the neighborhood. That takes on different forms. Some buddies of mine, uh, they worked in a, in a company in Orlando. We were there for 14 years. They worked in a company in Orlando that would go around and buy old theme parks and make them profitable again. Like, how fun does that sound? Right, like you know, they have. I'm thinking, do they have business meetings on roller coasters? Like, do you like what do you? I mean, that's what they do. 
And so they had a guy that they were walking with and, and, um, and, and I, I, they invited, I would go down to downtown Orlando and, and eat lunch with them sometimes. And all of a sudden I go, I show up to lunch and here's this guy named Billy. And I had not met Billy before, but I knew of him because they had told me about him. They had told me that he was a friend that worked with them. They were loving, they were walking with, they were befriending him. He had welcomed them into his life. And so lunch together is mainly just getting to know each other. A few weeks later, we have lunch together again. I'm just an observer. This isn't the normal professional clergy. Why don't you show up and tell us what we need? No, 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 no. My, my buddies are walking with Billy. I'm just an observer. So they've been now hanging with him for eight, nine months. He shows up one Sunday morning out of the blue. I wasn't expecting it. He shows up to our worship gathering on a Sunday morning. And, and Ted and Kurt, who are his buddies, my friends, um, they bring him in. He walks in with them. He comes in. He's this big, huge, like man of a man kind of guy. He walks in, gives me a big hug, picks me up. I'm like, Billy, I'm so glad you're here. All right, and, and he, he, he's never really been a part of something like that, is what he tells us. And then after, he comes up to me. I'm talking to a family that was visiting with us. And he says, without, he interrupts us. He doesn't wait, you know. He walks up into the middle of all of us standing together, interrupts and goes, that was a great bleep sermon. Or, excuse me, speech. Doesn't say sermon. That was a great bleep speech. And, and you know, I might have turned a little red, but I'm kind of like, that's the best compliment I've ever been given. Here's a guy that doesn't even believe what I was talking about. That family never showed up again. And <laughs> Seriously, I don't think they ever showed up again. About six months later, Ted and Kurt baptized Billy. Not all the stories work out like that. But it's a great example of two guys in the marketplace who pitched their tent in Billy's life. And Billy welcomed it. And he found abundant life because of it. If Ted and Kurt were so busy living for God, they could have easily missed Billy welcoming friendship. And they could have easily missed it because there was so much about Billy's life that they could have criticized. But because they lived a with God life, they knew that God desired for Billy to be with him too. Look at that next verse. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me has surpassed me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from his fullness. Don't just read this academically. Don't, don't just read it and think, oh, it's so great, grace after grace, and, and we can unpack the Greek here and all that stuff. 
This is a metaphor about rolling waves. It's the idea of, of grace just keeps crashing in on the shore of my life, on the shore of our lives. It's grace after grace after grace after grace, but it's much more than just the academic idea of that. Because I'm convinced that John is writing this, thinking about God with us, moving into the neighborhood, right? Thinking about the idea of when he was reflecting back on his life and recognizing, we saw that. I saw it in my own, I mean, remember John, one of the guys who says to him, can you think we could sit at your right and your left, right? Like, ambitious, prideful, right? And, and yet Jesus loved and valued them. They watched Peter and all of his insecurities. They watched Thomas and all of his skepticism. They watched Judas even and all of the betrayal. And they watched Jesus over and over again, grace upon grace upon grace. And more than it ever had, it hit home. We are broken and beloved, all at the same time. You are fully loved. I hope that every time you look in the mirror from this day forward, you can imagine yourself in a t-shirt with the words broken and beloved backwards. So that when you look in the mirror, you see your true identity. We're not slaves of a king. We're sons and daughters. We're not walking after some, some, someone who mistreats us. We're a beloved bride. We, we, we are fully loved. And so we can fully love. But here's the problem. I'm convinced that the culture around us struggles to understand why they need the gospel of Jesus because we haven't invited them along into our lives and shown them why we need it. In other words, we get too busy living for God, we forget to show the culture around us why we needed God too. What if in our vulnerability, we, we did invite others in? What if in our vulnerability, like John can reflect back on, and, and I get it, Jesus wasn't showing them why he needed the gospel, he is the gospel, but he was showing them what the gospel looked like in the everyday of life, what it looked like 160 hours a week, not just one hour a week, what it looked like in the, in the who of the church, not just the what of the church. He was showing them what it looked like for grace upon Upon grace, upon grace, upon grace to come alive in the middle of their brokenness and to see how beloved they were. Is there anybody in your life that knows why you need the gospel? Is there anyone in your life that, you've, that they've welcomed you and you've welcomed them and you've got relationship in such a way that it's not just hidden from them the sins that you need to confess. It's, as the scriptures say, confess your sins to one another. Where's the vulnerability? 
If it's not grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, then, then we don't have environments where honesty exists and we can truly say, here's why I need the gospel and we can give that kind of grace to each other. Who that is not believing in that gospel yet knows about the struggles you have or do you hide it from them because you think, oh, I wouldn't be worthy enough to make disciples if they saw that. Listen, friend, that is a lie from the devil because that's one of the very reasons why those people are not seeing why they need the gospel because they're not seeing why we do. You might say, well, I don't want to glorify my sin. That's not what I'm talking about. Glorify him, the one who's forgiven it. And if you don't let people in, they won't let you in. And if they don't let us in, they may not recognize their identity in Christ just the same as ours, worth dying for to Jesus. Grace upon grace upon grace, upon grace. And then finally, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. Now look, John's not negating the law. In fact, Jesus point blank said, I did not come to abolish the law to do away with it. I came to complete it. Right? The word that's usually translated as fulfill, but what, he's, what I think he's really saying is, because it can also be translated complete, I think he's saying, I came to bring it to its fullness. I came to bring it to its completion. That the law wasn't intended to make me good enough for God. The law was intended to keep me, to guard me, so that I could see how good God is. But here's the problem. If we miss that first part and we keep living for God lives, then what typically happens is law begins to sit on the top of the rung of the pedestal of the first, second, third place of the priorities of our lives. It even begins to sit in our framework of how we think of ourselves and think of God instead of grace and truth. We're not talking about licentiousness. We're not talking about just do whatever you want, God will forgive you. That's grace in air. We're talking about grace and truth together. But what I think we've gotten into trouble with in the last 50, 60 years here in our culture, in our country, is we've gotten really good at helping people know what we're against. We've gotten really good at helping people know what they should have done and what they shouldn't have done. And we forgot that truth by itself is a wrecking ball. But truth clothed in grace gives people the chance to become something they could have never become on their own. It affects parenting. It affects friendships. It affects marriages. It affects all of life. But it especially affects how the church of Jesus makes disciples with Jesus. Moses came with the law. Jesus came with grace and truth. 
What does that look like? On my, on my phone, there's a text stream. It's a group of men. And it happened yesterday on the way down here as we were driving down here. One of the men texted out, struggling. We've gotten to know each other's stories, right? Like, which is a surprise to me. I feel like, James, over the years, as I've walked with a lot of churches through different seasons, as typically as a coach or an encourager, it's funny how I'll get to know someone's story, bring it up in a meeting, and someone who's walked with them for 10 years is like, I've never known that person's story. I hope that's not the case here. But as we have gotten to know each other's stories, we know some of the trigger points for each other. We know some of the emotional pitfalls as men for each other. We know some of the insecurities for each other. Why? Because we need each other. I don't need a group of men on that text thread who, who avoid talking about the things they struggle with. We need a group of men who are saying, let's lean on and cling to Jesus together. And when I'm struggling, I need you to pick me up. And I watched yesterday as text after text, people responding and praying. Someone went by his house. Someone went to take him to coffee. People checked on his wife and kids. That's the church. That's the story of the church. And if grace and truth both exist, if we can remind that brother of the truth, that the darkness in his mind and the lies of the narratives that he's believing in that moment that's causing him to struggle or that's causing him to lean in a direction that is not life-giving but life-stealing, if we can speak the truth there, but it's clothed in the relationship of grace, then he and we will all have the chance to become what we are not. We'll all have the chance to become godly, but not because of our godliness, but because of his righteousness that he gifts to us. Who in your life, who in your life knows that grace and truth rhythm with you? Who recognizes it? Because listen, I think where we fail oftentimes as preachers is we didn't tell you what abundant life really was. Abundant life isn't just a life that's good for you. Abundant life is a life-giving life. It's you experiencing resurrection giving and life giving in a group of people who are all giving that life to each other. It's you giving it to those who've yet to believe. It's you encouraging those who are already believers. It's an ebb and flow that, that brings alive who the church was really intended to be. And that's what John is writing about here to say, no, you guys, the Savior we follow, he's one who moves into the neighborhood. We're to be sent as he was sent, John 20, 21 tells us. And he was sent, how? By moving into the neighborhood, by coming into the middle of us, by bringing not just the law and the truth, but grace and truth, with grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, and when we experience the fullness of that with him, 
It is both life-giving to us and life-giving to the people that we're walking with. And that's abundant life. This isn't just a church strategy. This is an identity and a security and a purpose. This isn't just a, here's the hope for it. No, this isn't some cute new mechanism. And 10 years from now, Lifeway will package something else up. This is about abundant life with Jesus. And living sent is a part of their core identity to live out the rhythms that Jesus lived with those men. And that becomes the story of the church with us. And so I challenge you, I encourage you, think in terms of what that grace upon grace, that grace and truth, that with Jesus and with one another, that life-giving purpose and rhythm might be for you. I've written about it, and if you've read any of the stuff, the small group studies, you may have heard the story, but there's a young lady named Catalina that is always, her story is so dear to us. She recently passed, this past fall, she died very young of of stomach cancer. She was 39. When we first met Catalina, it was when we were church starting and we opened a bank account and she was the young lady who opened the account. And you know, I mean, we're eager, we're young pastors, like we're like, oh yeah, everybody we meet, they're gonna be like future leaders in our church. You know, I mean, that's how we were thinking, right? And so here's Catalina from Columbia and she helps us open our bank account. We're kind to her, we keep relating with her. She ends up in friendship with three of the ladies that are a part of our church family, not because she showed up on Sunday morning, just through some other connection. She ends up leaving Washington Mutual where she worked and joins what's called the Disney Vacation Club. Anyone heard of it? Right? It's not timeshare. For them, that's a cuss word. But like, it's their version of that. And and so she ends up working at the Disney Vacation Club. Ten months later, she shows up to a Sunday morning gathering, and I think it spooked her, if I'm honest. I think she left and thought, they are weird. But she kept friendship with those women. She was living with her fiance at the time. She, she was walking through some different uh, difficult seasons in her life. And one of those women just deeply loved her and poured into her, and Catalina welcomed that relationship. And she was the first woman that we were able to dip into the water. But I'm going to tell you something, five years later, she was the one leading our women's ministry. She was the one who had started three small groups among Disney cast members at the Disney Vacation Club and multiple people had trusted Christ. She was the one who led out in funerals for two of those people when they lost a spouse suddenly. She was the one who kept loving the people who were on the fringes and the margins who didn't look like what we typically think of as the American church. And she kept loving them deeply. And when we were at her funeral in the fall, I looked around the room and I saw how many people her life had touched. 
in a short time. All because, not because of us eager pastors who opened a bank account, but because of three women who decided to love her well and that welcomed each other into their lives. And I'll never forget, she would say, it dawned on me because I watched how much these other women knew they needed God. It dawned on me, Catalina saying this, it dawned on me whose I was. I had been searching for who am I, and they taught me to discover whose I was. All because these ladies didn't just live for God, they lived with him. They moved into the neighborhood, they pitched their tent, all because they were open and vulnerable about why they needed they were broken and beloved. They, they knew what God thought of them was more important than what they thought of him and of themselves. All because they created relationship and grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in that environment. And Catalina saw whose she was. That's the story of the church. And so I encourage you, Live that with Jesus' life. Pray that he would help you invite along those who welcome friendship. And don't get hung up in thinking you're mature if you've never made a disciple with Jesus. Because you can't mature unless you're living on mission and in rhythms with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your love. Thank you so much for grace upon grace. I need it. Right now, Lord, as you move among us, would you bring to mind the remembrance that you are with us and that we are broken and beloved all at the same time and that our identity is secure because of what you did and it has nothing to do with what we do. And then you invite us into your purposes. Would you, Lord, help us to also, like you did, invite along Forgive us that we've boiled down so much to invite to when you modeled inviting along. And then would you mature us, not for the sake of our own maturity, but for the sake of your mission, your kingdom, and your glory, and your love, and may grace and truth abound. We pray this in your name. Amen.